morning. It's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, would you open up to John chapter 15? John chapter 15. I would like to welcome you who are here in person. It's lovely to see your beautiful faces. We are just so blessed to be able to gather outdoors, to be able to sing and worship together. My name is Trevor. Again, welcome. If you're joining us online, welcome. It's good to have you joining us online. It is our hope, our desire that by gathering together, we would encounter God. That's my hope for you this morning, that you would meet God. God, I believe, has you here this morning for a reason. And it is our desire, again, not that you would just hear a sermon or that you would sing some songs or pray some prayers. It is our hope that you would encounter God and be transformed by Him. It is our vision as a city to see all of Los Angeles, every single person, have their life changed by the power of the gospel because we believe that Jesus is our only real hope and we seek to make Him famous in a city where everyone else is trying to get famous. And so uh, it's good to be with you this morning. We're going to jump into John chapter 15 together. We're going to jump first. uh, We're going to pick up in verse uh, 18. That's where we're going to begin our time together. I will say that last week it was a joy to be able to open up John 15 verses 1 through 17 with you. A very famous text about abiding in Christ and that he is the vine and that uh, we are branches. And if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. Some of you stopped me after the service and said, this is one of my favorite passages. And it was a joy to be able to spend a time in that passage, to be able to preach that passage and to be in that together as a church. Um, this passage this morning is far more difficult. Almost nobody has ever come to me and said this passage is their, fam- is their favorite passage, and you'll see why in a second. Nevertheless, as a church, we seek to take the whole Bible seriously. We, we, we seek to take every word of Jesus seriously, and the, the words he has for us today, I do hope, will challenge us and encourage us and prepare us for what, we, for what he, God has for us in the world. We are walking verse by verse through the Gospel of John. We are doing that as we march closer and closer to Easter. We find ourselves right now in the Lenten season. And as as, as Lent is a season where we are practicing self-examination, where we are entering into a season of fasting and of prayer, longing to be closer to God, longing to identify with Him in His suffering, And at the same time, when we gather together on Sundays, we break from our fast, we rejoice, and we celebrate. Every Sunday leading up to Easter is kind of like a miniature Easter. For on Sundays, we celebrate that Christ is on the throne, that he did die, he did rise again, and that he is truly the Lord of all. Well, this morning, we are going to dive in, like I said, into John chapter 15. Let me start and set the stage by saying something that I think we all know is true. And that is this. Expectations are powerful things. Expectations are powerful things. If you go on a vacation and you expect it's going to be the best vacation you've ever had, then any time something goes wrong, you will be disappointed. If you go into a scenario believing it's going to be an awful experience and it's better than you thought, you'll walk out feeling a little bit more chipper about things. 
When you get married, if what you believe stands on the other side of the wedding ceremony is only that things will get better, you are likely to be disappointed. Marriage is filled with moments of both better and worse, difficulty, heartache, beauty, and joy. Expectations are powerful. Stephen Hawking was an astrophysicist. He worked at Cambridge University. He was at one time perhaps the most intelligent man on earth. He had an advanced degree in general theory. And he had uh, pushed the theory of relativity farther than anybody had done since Albert Einstein. Stephen Hawking also had, as some of you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS syndrome. Eventually, his body deteriorated and he died just a few years ago. He spent most of his life in a wheelchair. He couldn't do more than sit and think. He lost the ability to speak and he communicated by means of a computer that operated from the smallest movements of his fingertips for most of his life. Stephen Hawking was too weak to write, too weak to feed himself, could not comb his hair, could not fix his glasses. All of those things need to be done for him. Yet he was not an invalid. In fact, his personality shone through the messy details of his existence. Stephen Hawking said that before he got ill, before he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's, he had almost no interest in living life. He called his life a pointless existence, resulting from sheer boredom. He drank too much. He didn't work very much at all. Then when he learned that he had ALS, he was also told that he was not expected to live more than two years. The ultimate effect of his diagnosis beyond its shock and grief was positive. In fact, Stephen Hawking claimed to have been happier after he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's than before. How is that possible? He said this, quote, when one's expectations are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything that one does have. Maybe stated another way, contentment in life is determined in part by what a person anticipates from it. To a man like Stephen Hawking who thought that he would soon die quickly, everything took on new meaning. A sunrise or a walk in the park or the laughter of children. Suddenly, every small pleasure became precious. By contrast, those who live their lives believing that life owes them free and easy existence, they are often discontent with the world's finest gifts. Expectations are powerful. Jesus in John 15 is about 24 hours away from dying on the cross. We are in a section of text that's called the farewell discourse. He has sought to comfort them to serve them. He washed their feet. He encouraged them to not let their hearts be troubled. He promised them the Holy Spirit. Last week he said, make your home in me. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. 
Why is he instructing them and encouraging them and comforting them? Well, part of it is because if they are following him, the reason they need to know that their home must be in him is because he wants to be clear to them and to you and I this morning that the world cannot be our home. He wants his disciples to understand that there will be a cost to following him. And that cost is that they will be hated. Do you expect to be liked for being a Christian? Do you expect to be celebrated? Do you expect for people to rejoice when they hear that you have given your life to Jesus? Expectations are powerful. John chapter 15, Jesus in verse 18 pivots away from what he's just got done saying about abiding in him, bearing much fruit, loving well. And he says this, if you're following along, John 15, we're in 18 through 25. Jesus says to them, his disciples, and to you this morning. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will also obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is preparing his disciples. And he wants them to understand that part of following him will mean that they will experience some of the things that he experienced. I mean, that makes sense, right? What Jesus did, what he experienced, how he lived. If we're going to follow after him, our experience ought to be somewhat connected. Some of the challenges he faced, we too will face. He is preparing to leave them, and he says in verse 18 that they will be hated. Now, now here it says the word if, but if you read the whole text, you understand it. Jesus doesn't really mean if. He wants them to understand it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. He is preparing his disciples to be hated. And he reminds them that he was hated. He was hated first. If we're going to follow Jesus, it will mean walking with him through common challenges. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should expect that your experience will be connected to his. And that means being hated. Being hated 
is part of being Christian. Now, some of you, when you heard about Christian faith, you heard about the beauty. You heard about the blessings. You heard about forgiveness. You heard about the cleansing. You heard about the purpose. You heard about the goodness. You heard about all of those things. Salvation and eternity. But it's not all easy and fun. The honest truth is that Christianity is an alternative lifestyle. Especially where we live today. And Jesus says, you'll be hated by the world. Now to be clear, we recognize when we're in a text like this, that there are Christians who experience kinds of persecution throughout the world that is, are far more severe than what we experience. But let us not minimize that those sneers, those, that snickering, that teasing, that laughing, that name-calling that we sometimes experience, let's not pretend like that's not a kind of persecution. Jesus says, if you're going to be a Christian, expect to be hated by the world. Now, what does he mean by world? Because we do have to be careful here. Jesus doesn't mean all of the physical reality. He doesn't mean that literally everything physical in the world is going to be hating you. If you think like that too quickly, you can find yourself in the error of Gnosticism, believing that all material and physical things are bad and only the spiritual is good. Well, that's not true. So what does he mean by world? Well, he doesn't also mean, he doesn't mean all non-Christians. He doesn't mean every non-Christian in the Christian's life hates the Christian. He certainly doesn't mean that. Because that too quickly could lead to a kind of desire to see everyone as an enemy, everyone to be either avoided or conquered. He also doesn't mean all of secular culture. The world isn't a giant, evil, satanic plot against you. When I was younger, I remember a video where there was a video, maybe you've seen a video of a, a woman arguing that, uh, that Mountain Dew is the work of the devil. To drink a Mountain Dew is to be a co-conspirator with the devil. Oh, sorry, not a Mountain Dew. Sorry, a monster energy drink. That's what it was. A monster energy drink. And so sometimes people get so scared of the culture believing that everything in the culture essentially is the work of the devil that then they isolate from the culture. Well, that's not what Jesus means here. If you're taking notes throughout the Gospel of John, when John writes about the world, he means the system that stands opposed to God. He means the created moral order that is an active rebellion against God. And don't get me wrong, there is a sense where all physical reality has been touched by this, where unbelievers in secular culture has been tainted by this. I do not believe we find any truly neutral spaces. But I say that so that you understand that part of being a Christian is not to stand in opposition to all things physical or in opposition to all non-Christians or in opposition to all culture, but instead our responsibility is to love and to serve with Christ-like conviction and Christ-like love to those who God has placed around us. It is the very fruit that Jesus talked about last week. Last week, you remember, he talked on love. Love last week, hate this week. And he talked about love as the peak 
picture of love is laying one's life down for their friends. He wants the disciples to know how loved they are. God wants you to know how loved you are. He was willing to lay his life down for you. But he sets that stage about how much God loves you so that he can also talk in part to the disciples about how they need to, be, they need to expect that they will be hated. Being a Christian means you will be loved by God and it also does mean you will be hated by the world. This is normal. Jesus says, remember, they hated me, so you will also be hated. Why? Well, verse 19, Jesus says, why? Because you do not belong to the world. Jesus says that to be a Christian is to be selected out of the world, and that's part of the reason that you will be hated. He says, you used to be a part of the world. But that's all different now. Now you belong not to the world, but to Jesus. The jersey you used to wear, the way you used to live, it said world on it. You were a member of the world. That's where you had your home. But Jesus has taught his disciples they have been selected out of the world, and now they are on a different team. And that's not always going to be easy. That's not always going to be celebrated. Jesus says you have been, if you are a Christian, you've been chosen by God. You have been rescued. You have been saved. And if you take that to heart, the world will treat you like a traitor. Because the world will say you are a random accident. And as a Christian, you will say, no, I am not. I am created by God. The world will say, death is all there is. And you will say, no, it is not. There is a God and there is life with God forever. The world will say, right and wrong is up to you. And you will say, no, that God's morality is where the true joy and freedom are really found. The world will say, hey, create your own meaning. And you will say, no, no, no. Real purpose is found in God. The only way to avoid being hated as a Christian is to be silent. But to be silent is to be unfaithful. Jesus does not allow us to go along to get along. Love for God and for our neighbors compels us to speak. To speak when appropriate. And our speaking ought to reveal that we see the world differently. A half-Christian world and a half-Christian church get along mighty fine. But an anti-Christian world and a truly Christian church are going to be in conflict. We think about our brothers and sisters in China who are persecuted, in India who are persecuted, in much of South America and Africa, who are persecuted. In the Middle East, who are persecuted. Thomas Akempis, in his work, Imitation of Christ, says that we must be prepared for conflict. If we are not prepared to be hated, we have failed to be prepared. Jesus says, you don't belong to the world anymore, and nobody likes a traitor. The world 
and the way of the world is no longer your home. You can't belong to the world and, and Jesus at the same time. And so to be a Christian is to recognize that even wherever you find yourself in the world, you always feel this sense that it's not really your home because your home is in Christ. We talked about this last week. But it will only anger the world if you do not submit to it. It will only anger the world if you say, I don't belong to that way of thinking anymore. It is unavoidable. Some of us think we can avoid this. When I was in high school, I thought I could avoid this. When I was in high school, I remember having a list written down in my journal of all of the people who I knew didn't like me. And I had a mission. I was going to graduate high school as a senior and I was going to win everybody over. I had this sense in me that I could do it too, right? I had this sense that like I can, I can get everyone to like me. That's a doable task. I mean, Jesus couldn't do it, but I can. I mean, I could be kinder, pick my spots better, maybe be more loving. Maybe I can make Jesus more palatable. We try to do these things thinking if we, if we just love enough, if we're just kind enough, then maybe we will be well-liked by all. Well, Jesus makes that really clear that it's not the case. Right? He, he says directly... In verse 20, he reminds them that no servant is greater than their master. Do not assume you can do a better job of avoiding being hated than Jesus if you also seek to be faithful to God. You cannot be more articulate. You cannot be more faithful. He is the greatest. Jesus is love incarnate. He offers forgiveness to all of his enemies. He only has mercy for those who want it. He forgives all sin. He dies for those who crucify him. You aren't better than him. But some of us go, hey, Jesus, watch me. Watch me as I win people over. It's, it's, it's nonsense. Some of you need to stop living in such a way that your chief goal is to not be disliked. To do that is only to become a servant or slave to those who have opinions over you that are negative. They rejected Jesus, if you follow him, you will be rejected as well. But there is hope. Jesus says to his disciples that those who receive Jesus' words will also receive their words. They won't be hated by everyone. There will be those who do accept them, who hear Jesus' words, agree with them, seek to hold them, seek to put them into practice. Seek to gather together in worship on Sundays. That's part of what we do. Like, we are weird people, right? You know this a little bit. I think I've t I talk about this every couple of years I mention this. And I was just recently reminded of it because I was in Austin, Texas just a couple of weeks ago. And Austin has this phrase, right? Keep Austin weird. It's part of their, like, identity as a city. That they recognize, hey, we're in Texas, but we're weird. 
And then there's a city up, up north, right? A city in Portland. It's got kind of the same thing, right? Keeping Portland weird. I have long been advocating that to be a Christian is to recognize that if I'm going to be Christian, I'm going to be weird. You're going to be weird. You, you have to come to terms with that. And so we gather together as a bunch of weirdos. Don't get us wrong. We know we're weird. We know we carve out time every Sunday to gather together, to sing songs to God, to pray together, to open up an ancient book. To be we believe we hear God's word, and yet we believe to eat together. We gather around a table to eat together. We do this week in and week out, loving and serving one another well. We do this. We know we're weird, but we do it because we are compelled by the love of God. We find Jesus compelling. He has bound us together into a new family. And he says, you're going to be hated by the world. Why are we treated like this? Jesus says in verse 21, he says it's because of his name. As the disciples live and teach and serve as Jesus, they will be hated because Jesus taught his disciples to live as he lived, to teach what he taught, to do what he says. And we recognize the difficulty in this because we will share everything in our lives but struggle to share our faith. I remember it was about 10 years ago in Santa Monica. I was meeting with a member of the church we were having lunch together, and he said to me, it would be so much easier to stand up at the middle of my, of my workplace at lunchtime and to tell people that I'm, I'm, I'm going, that I'm going to come out of the closet as having an alternative sexual ethic. It would be so easy to do that compared to me standing up in my workplace and declaring, I have just given my life to Jesus. And I remember thinking, that's crazy. But it doesn't feel crazy anymore. It's uncomfortable to declare to the world, I'm with Jesus. It's uncomfortable to declare to the world, like, I don't want to live as the world lives. I'm following Jesus. I'm living for him. It's his opinion who matters most. It's hard and difficult to turn to our neighbors and to say with great conviction, do you know what I think you need? You need the love of God in your life. You need to know Jesus. That's a hard thing to do. We will we'll see a movie and we'll shout it from the rooftops. We'll, we'll go to a restaurant and we'll leave a review. We'll buy a book and we'll post it on Goodreads. Right? We'll, we'll have a success at work, or we'll come into some money, or we'll do all sorts of things, and we'll, we'll celebrate it. But when God does something powerful in our lives, we are often quiet, looking for the spaces where we might get some sort of positive affirmation, because we feel the hostility in our world. Why does that hostility exist? Because Jesus says, because we don't know God. The world doesn't know God. And Jesus says that his arrival in verses 22 through 23 only serve to expose the world's sin. Their sin would be less apparent. Sometimes I think about how if, if Jesus didn't show up, we would all look around and go, hey, we're doing a pretty good job at being human. Jesus is the one who breaks the curve, doesn't he? 
He's the student in class that gets the A when everyone else doesn't do well. It's like compared to who? Without Jesus, we would, we would feel not so bad compared to our neighbor maybe. In fact, some of us would even feel superior to our neighbors. But next to Jesus, we are all exposed. That's what his point is. Not that they wouldn't be guilty before God for their sin. But all of a sudden with Jesus showing up and saying, this is what it looks like to be truly human. All of a sudden, our lives compared to his just are completely, they're, they're, a, they're a wash in sin and rebellion and hatred compared to Jesus who is perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly gracious. And so when Jesus shows up and they see the God-man and they hear him speak, rather than running to him, falling on their knees and asking for mercy and forgiveness, instead they hate him for exposing them. To hate Jesus is to hate what is good. And Jesus says to hate him is to hate God. Verse 24 says that Jesus says his works confirm his righteousness because he did what only God can do. And his work should cause all of us to see him for who he really is. So in both his words and by his works, we not only see God clearly, we see who we really are. We take an honest look at ourselves. If you joined us for Ash Wednesday, we talked about the importance of looking at ourselves honestly. But an honest look at ourselves and at God should result in us moving towards God for mercy and for grace. But it doesn't. Instead, Jesus' opponents turn on him. They respond with hatred for him, which Jesus says is hatred for the Father. And Jesus says that this fulfills, in verse 25, what is written, that they hate him without reason. There is no reason why anybody should hate Jesus. He is ready to help all, to love all. He is ready to forgive you. He is ready to restore you, to cleanse you, to renew you, to forgive you. He's ready to set you free from confusion. But many of us will instead stick with the world. And the pattern continues. Let me just give us Three quick application points of this text as we wrap up. One, don't try to be hated. Some of you are trying too hard to be hated by the world. Some of you, you're not, you're not hated because you're being faithful to Jesus. You're hated because you're kind of an awful person. You don't listen you don't try to understand, you're impatient, you're unkind, you're uncompassionate, you're quick to get angry, and you're more concerned about winning arguments than you are winning people. Your job is not to change anyone, but your job is to love everyone. Some of you need to be reminded that being hated is not the goal. Being hated is a byproduct of faithfulness to Christ. But it is not the goal. 
So some of you need to take a good, hard look in the mirror and ask yourself, is the reason people hate me because I love them and love God, or is the reason people hate me because I am impatient, unkind, slow to react, or quick to react, quick to get angry, quick to fly off the handle? If that's the case, confess, repent. Don't try to be hated. Secondly, don't try too hard to not be hated. I feel like this is probably more true of many of you this morning. Some of you are trying so hard to not be hated. Because you want to fit in. You want to be liked. And you've noticed that so long as your Christianity is just reduced to kindness you'll be okay. You won't be hated. But following Jesus is about so much more than just being a kind person. Certainly not less than that, but it's so much more. To be a Christian is to be a person of love, to be a person of courage, to be a person of justice, to be a person of truth, to be a person of witness, to be a person of conviction, to be a person of invitation, to be a person of good news. And those truths will always get pushback. Some of you need to know that if you are waiting forever, if you're sorry, if you're waiting to never be hated, you will be waiting forever. Galatians 1:10, Paul says, "Do I seek to please God or do I seek to please man? If I seek to please man, it will be impossible for me to please God." The early church was hated. In the book of Acts, when the early church was persecuted, they get back together to pray, and what you'd think that they would pray is, God, help us to not be hated. But instead what they pray is, God, give us greater courage and greater boldness. Do you want to be accepted by the world? Or do you want faithfulness to Jesus? Do you want the approval of the world? Really? Is that what you want? You want the world to say great job? Or do you want God to say, well done, my good and faithful servants? Some of you, you're trying too hard to not be hated. Third, and finally, love them anyway. You see, when the world experiences opposition, what do they do? They cancel you. What does the world experience when they have opposition to them, right? What do they do? They name call. They marginalize. They mistreat. They punish. They threaten. That's what they do. What do we do as Christians when we are mistreated? We love them anyway. Hear me. Maybe the greatest opportunity for evangelism in your life is how you respond when people do not like you. The early church got this. One of my favorite records from the early church, and I quote it often, it's from the, the epistle of Methedes to Diognetus. It's worth reading, especially chapter 5. For those of you taking notes, the epistle of Methedes to Diognetus. It's a short a letter 
to Diognetus from this guy Methedes. Diognetus is a ruler, and Methedes is trying to help him understand the Christians. He asked the question, Methedes, help me understand, who are these Christian people? And here's what Methedes writes about Christians. This is like 200 years after Jesus. This is the reputation of the church. Methedes, who's not a Christian, says, the Christians, oh, the Christians, quote, they love all men and are persecuted by all. They are dishonored, yet they are vindicated. We speak evil about them, and yet they are glorified. They are reviled, and yet when they're reviled, they, they bless. When we insult them, they repay insult with honor. They do good, and yet we punish them. When punished, the Christians, you know how they're different? When, when Christians are punished, they rejoice as if they are quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That's how the early Christians were known because they took seriously that when we are mistreated, we are to love them anyway. When you were against Jesus, what did he do? He loved you anyway. We will be hated. You will be hated. And when you are, the, the command of God to you is to love them anyway. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who in your life doesn't like you? Who in your life do you think might hate you? Who in your life do you suspect that if they really knew that you were a Christian and what you really thought, that they would not like you? And then, this is my follow-up question, how can you seek to love and bless them this week? That's your homework. To love and to bless someone who you know doesn't like you. The early Christians knew the love of God. They knew that God was crucified for them. They knew it was their sin that caused it. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, when he is being stoned, he prays the same prayer. Because to be a Christian is to love in the face of hate. It is not an option. It is a command. And I believe that it is the most important thing we can do to testify to the beauty of who God is. But let me close by saying this. You will never be able to be disliked or hated until you, your identity is found in God and not the world. You'll never be able to deal with being mistreated until you care more about what God thinks of you than your neighbor. You'll never be able to endure persecution until you see that you were once against Jesus and his response to you was love and sacrifice, invitation and blessing. But if you get that, it will change everything for you. Some of you 
need to focus on not being hated. Some of you need to focus on not trying so hard to not be hated. Some of you this morning need to love some people who you've been tempted to respond with hatred towards. And every single one of you this morning needs to take another look at the goodness and love of God. You need to see that God's love for you is the kind of laying his life down for his friends kind of love. Because when you get that you're loved by like that, when you get that God's love is given to you and won't be taken away, when you have security in the love of God alone, it is then that you can truly love your neighbor, especially when you are mistreated. But there is also help. And next week we will look at the helper. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you taught us that we would be hated. That excites none of us. None of us are here this morning wanting to be disliked by our neighbors, wanting to be hated, wanting to be persecuted, wanting to be mistreated, wanting to be spoken ill of, wanting to be called all kinds of names. None of us want that. And we recognize, Lord, that we don't have it nearly as bad as some of our brothers and sisters all over the world. So one of the things we do, Father, before you right now is we just lift up persecuted Christians all over the world. We pray for those who are persecuted much more harshly than we are or maybe will ever be. We pray that you would give them courage, that you would give them strength, that they would find their identity in you, and that they would witness to the goodness and beauty of who you are by the way they respond to hostility. Lord, I pray that we would learn from our persecuted brothers and sisters across the world, that we would be prepared, that we would expect to be mistreated, that we would not expect this life to be easy, but we would recognize that following you comes at the cost, sometimes of our reputation, sometimes financially, sometimes in our, our relationships. We are going to be hated Lord, we don't want to be hated. Give us the ability to not do anything that causes us to be hated unnecessarily. But Lord, help us to be faithful to you. And when we are hated, help us to love anyway. Lord, I pray that one of the things that people would say about our church, about brothers and sisters here this morning, is that we are the kinds of people who when we are hated, we bless. When we are mistreated, we honor. When we are spoken ill of, we respond with love. That we would be the kind of people who would love them anyway. And by doing so, Lord, not only would they come to know you, but we would rejoice. We would rejoice in the ways that those moments testify to your loving kindness towards us. Lord, help us bring to mind this morning people in our lives who don't like us. Help us to love them. Give us clear, practical steps that we can bless them. We thank you that you do, not, you do not give us false expectations of what it looks like to live the Christian life, but you walk with us. You do not abandon us. You do not forsake us. Help us to love you well, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.